Hello, South by Southwest and all the ships at sea, and welcome to A Very Good Year, the movie podcast where we invite a guest to pick their favorite year of movies and talk to us all about that year. Uh, we are again recording from Austin, Texas at the South by Southwest Film and TV Festival, as you can perhaps hear from the Sunday morning hubbub behind me. Uh, I'm your host, Jason Bailey, and across the mic and halfway across the country from me is my co-host, Michael Hull. And our guest today is just a wonderful film critic and the keeper of a really vitally important flame. He is the managing editor of RogerEbert.com. He's also a contributor just all over the damn place, including at Vulture, The New York Times, The Playlist, and Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, And he is the president of the Chicago Film Critics Association. Uh, And he's also just a really good dude. Uh, Folks, this is Brian Tallarico. Hey, Brian. Hey, thanks, guys. Thank you so much for doing this and for for getting up on the morning after Spring Forward, which somehow always falls during South by Southwest. But I appreciate you uh, uh, skipping the extra, uh, foregoing the the makeup hour of sleep. Uh, I left the party early last night just to get a little more sleep, to be fresh and vital. Thank it's worth you it. so it's much. Probably a good idea for a number of reasons. <laughs> so this will air much later, but we're we're talking on the uh, on day three of South by Southwest. On the Feels like day, day forty five. It's it's already been a bit of, of a thing. Um, but how are you enjoying it so far? Good, you, good. Uh, yeah, I like the movie quality is always a bit middle of the road here, mm-hmm. but I like the energy of Austin. I yeah. think Austin's got a really good creative energy there's a good spirit here i feel like i have more like conversations with strangers here than any other festival it's just a really like sociable fun place to come see movies and be with people the movies might not be great especially this year and i wish they were better but i really enjoy the atmosphere here like maybe more than any other fest and the food the food is when you're comparing toronto and park city and austin (laughs) there's a clear winner in terms of food oh there sure is (laughs) There sure is, and and especially uh, with Salt Lake or with uh, with Park City, there's a real uh, tick up in the quality of drinking as well. That's, oh yeah, that's like it's it's pretty much illegal in most of Utah. <laughs> they also don't believe in seasoning like salt yes. or pepper. Sorry, Utah. <laughs> yes. Um, all right. Well, well, let's get to let's get to the business at hand. Uh, Brian Tellerica, what year did you pick to talk about on this Sunday morning, and why? I picked the year I turned 16, 1991. Mm. And I think that's one of the reasons I picked that year. Very formative part of your life, especially if you're going to become a film critic and a film lover in terms of what you value in terms of craft and theme and performance. And a year where I was trying to, I'm not going to spoil my picks, but I was trying to kind of umbrella them a little bit. And I think there are all films that like shifted the way I think about genre Mm. and the way I think about certain performers that I loved when I was younger and what they could then do and shift and change. So potentially. Gotcha. Well, and also, you know, and this is the thing we've talked about with some other guests who picked sort of similar points in their youth years is, you know, if if you if this is when you're 16, this is also when you sort of first are really like going to the movies by yourself and you can probably get into an R-rated movie. By yes. Yourself. Yeah. I was lucky enough to have like uh, a really encouraging father who like mm-hmm. let me see stuff I might not have fully grasped early. But you're right. Then this is where I built on that. Like my dad took me to see Platoon. 11 holy shit and and do the right thing at 14 so like and those are formative experiences yeah and like so then you're right though that this is probably i probably saw a few of these on my own uh which is when that's really starting to happen and you know at risk of spoiling where we're going with this like how did your 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 view uh and your critical eye really start to start to shift from some of the things that you were seeing around this age again i don't want to spoil titles but i feel like (laughs) all of the ones i chose really built on stuff i had liked before in different ways I, i can get more into details when we talk about it but so like range and potential and some of these movies i think even shaped the way i feel about life Mm. again i don't want to spoil things a little bit and what i value in filmmaking there's one in particular there's two in particular that are like i point to that i realized when i made these choices like oh that's like a template to what i really think about certain films and choices and controversies around filmmaking critical theory that's the way to put it two of them really shaped my critical theory uh and i think that's interesting to kind of unpack yeah yeah, well, let's let's do let's unpack it. Uh, but before we do, Mike is going to uh, to take us through some of the things that were happening out in the world around you and I, who was also sixteen in in the year nineteen ninety one. I think I do that. Yeah. Um, so uh, so let's 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 pause uh, on movies and let's take a take a look at some headlines. 
This is a special report from ABC News. I'm Peter Jennings in New York. We believe that something is going on in Iraq. We know something is going on in Iraq. We do not know what. Let me just very briefly bring you up to date on what we do know. Reporting from Saudi Arabia and Washington tonight confirms that there has been unusual American air activity in the area of the Persian Gulf. And ABC's Gary Shepard is presently, excuse me, is currently on the line from the Al Rashid Hotel in the western sector of Baghdad. And Gary, bring us up to date very quickly on what you have been seeing over the last five or six minutes. Glancing ahead, this first one was pretty impossible to miss just in terms of like being a red-blooded American teen uh, in the Midwest. Yeah, and also like not sure that this wasn't going to go on forever and ever and involve me when I turned 18, mm -hmm. right? In January, yep. we launched Operation Desert Storm with the goal of kicking a rock out of Kuwait. And we were successful in that limited and specific mission. And then it all ended and everything turned out fine. And I wore a black armband yeah. to high school every day because I was that kid. Oh, my. <laughs> I wore a black armband <laughs> to protest the war with my friend Gordon Smith, who's now a writer on Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul. Wow. And Emmy nominee. We wore black armbands in protest of Operation Desert Storm. That's, Nicely done. I, nice. was, I was always been aggressive. <laughs> Way to get ahead of the curve on that one. Yeah. In Moscow, the hammer and sickle is lured for the last time. And an era comes to an end. I am ceasing my activities in the post of President of the USSR. The tricolor banner of the Russian Republic now flies over the Kremlin. And from the White House, President Bush salutes the man who presided over the end of the Soviet Union. His legacy guarantees him an honored place in history and provides a solid basis for the United States to work in equally constructive ways with his successors. Citizens of Estonia and Latvia voted more than three to one to leave the Soviet Union early in the year, and things just kept going downhill for the USSR, basically. For, I mean, that was pretty much it. Uh, in June was the dissolution of Yugoslavia and the Comic-Con. In July, the Warsaw Pact dissolved. In August, Ukraine, Moldova, Azerbaijan, Kyrgyzstan, Uzbekistan, and Belarus all declared independence in one month. And in December, the Soviet Union was officially dissolved, uh, and they brought in the Russian Federation. Bye, so that Felicia. was like, you know, the end of the Cold War, you know, yeah. that kind of... There was a lot of, like, Reagan bought so many, like, bombs they couldn't keep up, and that was why it all fell apart. It was a lot of just nonsense. Yep. A lot of browbeating, chest-beating, and... Yep. Yeah. Yep. Uh, in March, a video camera was rolling while four LAPD officers beat Rodney King in the middle of the street. They were indicted on March 15th, but not convicted. Uh, those consequences would come up in the following year. But we're not talking about next year yet. We're, we're just not, talking sorry. about the uh, in 1991 gotcha. was when, you know, everybody saw this. It was sort of the f like early viral yeah. in a way. Right. We still didn't yeah. have, you know, but it just in terms of like it was blanketing. We had CNN at that point, yeah. you know, and every channel this beating was on all the time. Yeah, we saw that video a lot of times um, and it was horrifying as these things continue to be. Does anybody wonder why, like, Gen X became inspired by heroin and Kurt Cobain and just, like, I mean, it just didn't, it was not a hopeful time. I don't not recall so it as a hopeful time. I was not wearing a black armband to school. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> In Amsterdam, thieves stole 20 paintings from the Van Gogh Museum worth $500 million. The paintings were found in an abandoned car less than an hour later, but I have it on good authority that those are forgeries. I'm not naming sources. Mike, for the millionth time, I've accounted for my whereabouts. I was not in Amsterdam when those paintings were stolen, and I'd appreciate if you'd stop bringing it up on the show. In April, 55 tornadoes broke out over two days in the Midwest, with the worst one being in Andover, Kansas, about 20 minutes away from me and Jason in 1991. Remember that? Yes, and I do indeed. I, I do indeed. It I was horrifying. Yeah. It was one of the actual, like, growing up in Kansas, you get pretty, uh, you get pretty thick skin with tornadoes, right? That one was mm -hmm. actually scary. Yeah, we made national news. That was about the only way that, that Wichita, Kansas, and the surrounding area made national news was when a tornado come and, like, fucked everything up. Detroit has yep. its issues, but did not have tornadoes growing So there you up. go. Occasionally. There you go. <laughs> 
Yeah, to find other reasons to be scared. Yes. Yeah, uh, but the next day, a tropical cyclone hit Bangladesh, and that killed 138,000 people. So, all in all. But, yeah. And then, like, I didn't hear about that until years later, because we were still yeah. talking about Andover. We yeah. sure were. Right. Uh, the best news of 1991, there was some good news, Yay. was the repealing of the apartheid laws in South Africa. Nelson Mandela and his friends were all out of prison by that point, and the groundwork started being laid for elections in 94 that would see him become leader of the country. See, that's and, and then later it became a movie somehow about soccer. <laughs> yes, it did. <laughs> or excuse, excuse me, football, excuse me, a Some. movie about football. <laughs> that everyone has memory hold, that I had memory hold entirely until you mentioned that. <laughs> uh, yeah. At the White House, Chief of Staff John Sununu was sounding out key senators on the phone. Aboard Air Force One, President Bush was promising a nominee for all Americans. But all over town, administration officials were floating the name of Federal Appeals Court Judge Clarence Thomas. He's 43 years old, conservative, an outspoken critic of affirmative action, former head of the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. But Thomas's nomination, which would likely produce a confirmation fight, is anything but assured. And Thurgood Marshall retired from the Supreme Court, and he was replaced by, any guesses? Oh, surely uh, surely a, a, a juror of equal uh, magnitude <laughs> and intellect and import, I'm sure. I mean, they how could they replace <laughs> a legend like Thurgood Marshall with, with like, a son of a bitch? Like, who, who did they replace him with, Mike? He was also black. Does that okay. count? No. Clarence Thomas. Mm, mm. Mm. Well, I'm sure I'm sure I'm sure that won't go poorly. I'm sure he won't be a deciding vote in any of the the worst decisions in the years to come. Carry on. We're going to need a whole nother podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Tim Berners-Lee announced the World Wide Web project to the rest of us. You know, they'd been working on it in their little nerd circles for a while, but the rest of us found out. And right. he created the first website, info.cern.ch, which is still live if you want to go look at it. Nice. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. Uh, it actually is. It's a lot of like, you know, early. It's a very basic website. I'm you know, sure. It's a lot of text. Sure. Prepare for some reading. Uh, yeah. And, and then there's familiar. a and then there's a picture of Pamela Anderson that takes 30 minutes to download. <laughs> like it's very it's the entire early Internet experience. Sounds like a flashback. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Some folks passed over the Rainbow Bridge in 91, including Def Leppard guitarist Steve Clark, who died of alcohol poisoning like a real fucking rock star. All right. Uh, Leo Fender, Aldo Ray, Martha Graham, Don Siegel. Shout out. Stan Getz, Frank Capra, Joe Pasternak. Yeah, Dr. Seuss, bro. No more Dr. Uh, Seuss books. Yeah. Uh, Red Fox. Shout out to Red Fox. Passed in 91. Better wash your ass. <laughs> that's the name Gene of a Red Barry. Fox album. That's a that's an actual Red Fox yeah. album with him standing next to a donkey's ass, yeah, saying, "You better wash your ass." I'm just quoting the man in question. It's also solid advice. Yeah, uh, it's true. Gene Roddenberry, uh, mm-hmm. Ghislaine Maxwell's dad, Robert. What do you know okay. about Ghislaine Maxwell's dad, Robert? Not one thing, man. If you want to know how the world really works. Read about Robert fucking Maxwell. That guy was right. that. That was a very. He was a very bad person. Uh, I'm gonna go out on a limb and, and say that. Uh, <laughs> Daniel Mann, Klaus Kinski, Freddie Mercury, and last but never least, Miles Davis passed in '91. Mike, I appreciate you putting the dream blunt rotation at the end, so I didn't have to interrupt you because those the, those four. <laughs> that's that's an evening in, my friend. <laughs> Daniel Mann, Until Klaus Kinski, run away from Fred Klaus Kinski. <laughs> <laughs> right. Evening somewhere. I mean, it's an adventure. I didn't say it was mellow. It's just an adventure. Yes. The New York Giants beat the Buffalo Bills 20 to 19 in a very exciting Super Bowl. Nolan mm-hmm. Ryan pitched his seventh career no hitter, and Dennis Martinez pitched the 13th perfect game in Major League history. Wow. So those were exciting moments. See, I don't follow baseball, but. But I, I, I'm able to piece together from context clues that a perfect game is probably a pretty big deal. Yeah, it's hard to do. It's quite complicated. Yeah. It doesn't happen often. All right. Uh, the Bulls beat the Lakers four games to one to start their streak of six championships in eight years. Right. First of all, let me say good, good after late afternoon. Um, because of uh, the HIV virus that I have attained, uh, I will have to retire from the Lakers uh, today.
this was also the year Magic Johnson announced his HIV diagnosis. So it was a definite sort of change in the other guard in the there NBA. All right. And there was a World Cup in 1991. The U.S. women beat Norway 2-1, to one, so it was a good one. All right. Nice work. That's headlines. Well done. All right. Thank you for those headlines, Mike. And now, a word from our sponsor. Discover something new at the 52nd edition of New Directors, New Films, presented by the Museum of Modern Art and Film at Lincoln Center. Now underway through April 9th, experience what Hyperallergic calls one of New York's most exciting film festivals. That's right. With 27 features and 11 shorts from 35 countries, immerse yourself in new and emerging voices in cinema with prize-winning films from Cannes, Locarno, Sundance, and many feature debuts. Get tickets and learn more at newdirectors.org. All right, Brian, let's do a top five. All right, so we're we're just gonna kind of we we've got the five. We, you you did not rank. You are not a ranker, uh, which is totally totally agreeable. Not everyone likes to do that. Uh, we're just gonna kind of move through them uh, organically, if you will. We'll yeah. we'll start and just sort of see where we go, and we'll land on all five of these, and you'll tell us what you loved so much about each of them. I love that idea. All right. I love so, organic movement. <laughs> so speaking organically, uh, what is the first film on your top five of 1991? I want to start with the last one I pushed into this group of five. Okay. I want to start with L.A. Story. I thought that possibly I'd take you on a, you know, cultural tour of L.A. Yeah, I must admit, when I see a painting like this, I get uh, emotionally erect. Bon appetit. Yeah, I'm done already, and I don't remember eating. I'll have a decaf espresso. No, I'll have a double decaf cappuccino. Do you have any decaffeinated coffee ice cream? I'll have a half double decaffeinated half cap with a twist of lemon. L.A. Story. I'll have a twist of lemon. I'll have a twist of lemon. Yeah, I'll have a twist of lemon. I'll have a twist of lemon. I'll have a twist of lemon. Movie that I adored when it came out, and I feel more strongly about with every passing year. And I'm trying to figure out why. When you asked me to do this, why I needed to get L.A. Story in. I think L.A. Story, like a lot of the films I'm going to talk about today, kind of shifted the way I thought about its star and its creator. I grew up like a lot of kids in the 80s. Steve Martin was goofy and silly. I loved The Jerk and Three Amigos and mm -hmm. Roxanne. And Roxanne certainly has that kind of intellectual, romantic quality to it. But L.A. Story, to me, is like the best of Steve Martin the blend of his intellectualism and his whimsy. Like, is there, a, other than the arrow over the head, is there a better Steve Martin image than roller skating through an art museum? Like, that <laughs> is Steve Martin. That's it's, what he's I'm going to yeah. be goofy, but yeah. also incredibly intellectual and artistic at the same right. time. And L.A. Story also speaks to the romantic in me. I'm a cheeseball. I grew up, my mom used musicals as a babysitter. I think I've oh. seen Singing in the Rain more than any movie ever. <laughs> so, like, the romantic aspects of L.A. Story, the idea that, like the fates can push you in the direction if you only pay attention to them. Mm -hmm. Like those really work for me. And then there's the LA stuff, which he peppers in there. Like some of it's a little dated, like the highway shooting stuff <laughs> and the, and just all the weather stuff. Some of it's a little silly, but there's a anarchal anarchic whimsy to it all that I like, like this chaotic regulated chaos. Yeah. LA story that is just really hard to do. And I think I looked at that and I was like, man, I like this kind of movie. I like the kind of movie that takes risks, but feels personal and smart and weird all yeah. at the same time. Yeah, I see. I can see that. I, yeah. you know, I saw it in the theater when it came out. I have a very vivid memory of seeing it and loving it. Saw it again on like VHS, whatever, like a year later. And then I hadn't had an opportunity to revisit it. Until, yeah, it went underground. Yeah. It was hard to find for a very long time. Right. And then got a recent Blu-ray release. Yep. For the first time. At which time you wrote a very nice piece about the film to the uh, for the LA Times. This is not about me, <laughs> <laughs> but and and, I, and so rewatching it now with you know like I don't you know more than twenty years since I've seen it last, and I I really was struck by well a, a few things. First of all, that it's at the time was very much written off as yeah. like Steve Martin doing Manhattan. Right. Like it was yep. Steve Martin's L.A. There. version of Manhattan. That's part of it. It's structurally fair, but yeah. I think we can all say now that it's aged much better than Manhattan. Oh, has. yes. It's a mu it's much more comfortable yes. to watch L.A. story yeah. than it is to watch Manhattan, uh, knowing what we know in, in the year 2023. Right. Um, 
But the other thing that would, that would, that really struck with me, you know, I remembered how great Steve Martin was and how funny he was in it, obviously, as he always is. Um, but the the care that he takes with the supporting characters yeah. in this thing is really striking. That, um, and and honestly, the best example for me as I was rewatching it was was Sandy. Yeah, with Sarah Jessica Parker's performance yep. as, as Sandy the Valley Girl, which is would have been the, like nothing on this earth would have been easier than to write and play her as an absolute caricature. Right. And they never succumb to that. No, it's not. It could have just been mocking L.A. culture. And it's yeah. not. It's very in love with the culture it's portraying and that it's trying to. He loves L.A. He, yeah. Very clearly. That, that comes through in Woody's New York movies, too. But this one feels pure almost mm-hmm. like and it doesn't feel as forced as, as what he sometimes does with his new york stuff like steve just loves la and he's going to show you the funny it's more goofy than barbed you right know what i mean well yeah and i think there's kind of an authenticity to yes. that portraiture as well like woody allen was very open about the fact that like in especially the 70s and 80s that he was i mean he he shouts it out explicitly at the beginning of manhattan that he was presenting a romanticized right. version of, right right and and really ignoring a lot of kind of terrible things that were yeah. happening to sort of have this gershwinized uh new york but i really feel like this is pretty much la like yeah. this is you know he's not really yeah. uh, painting over much of anything yeah. um but that the you know the sort of the, the the care and the love that that goes into the supporting characters the sort of offbeat quality of victoria Tennant as the, yeah. the romantic lead um, a great and, choice an unexpected choice that not a lot of other people would have made yeah most people would have forced a name or someone else into that role and i think that's another reason i loved it it wasn't it didn't feel quite as commercial and it's consequently wasn't <laughs> some other of the rom-coms of the day yes that is true but yeah it's it's a wonderful movie uh find that blu-ray check it out because if you've seen it you've probably forgotten how great yeah. it is yeah. and then go read uh brian's piece in the la times just google that um okay so where should we go next then? i'm gonna just follow the organic train of thought uh-huh. to another unexpectedly cast rom-com from someone you wouldn't expect a rom-com from and that's defending your life Critics are calling it the funniest movie of the year. Isn't it amazing? Is this what you thought it would be? Fox Television says it's a winner. Romantic and funny. Just dynamite. Cosmopolitan says your belly will ache with laughter. Incredible! Time Magazine says it's a boldly imagined new comedy. Albert Brooks, Meryl Streep, in the first true story of what happens after you die. Defending your life. Rated PG. Now playing in select theaters. Everywhere April 5th. Albert Brooks defending your life, I would go as far as to say kind of shape the way I think about the world, mm. like karma and standing up for yourself and doing things. It's a movie I adored from the minute I saw it. I knew who Brooks was. I can't remember if I had seen like modern romance and that kind of stuff. That's not kind of the stuff that would really appeal to a Midwestern 12 or 13 year old. Sure. It's possible I had. It's also possible defending your life was my first. Yeah, uh, It's his most accessible Yes. Film. It's certainly at that era, uh, which was a kind of a turn for him. I remember Roger, I think, was t- talking about how surprised he was it had a happy ending, <laughs> which is always a funny thing to consider. Right. Well, he had really he had sort of become more of more of a, a marketable commodity. Right. Mostly because of broadcast news. Right. Right. A few right. Years right. Earlier. Oh, I had seen that for sure. Yeah. So I knew who he was and I adore but I, broadcast yeah, Same. News. But I had never seen any of his movies. It's possible. I can't really yeah. remember. If I hadn't, I saw them shortly after Defending Your Life. Sure. Because Defending Your Life just works front to back the way it's it's so it's a tight screenplay it's just structured so perfectly and it makes me laugh and honestly it kind of moves me like the the standing up for yourself believing in what you want in this life and taking it and going for it and jumping off the trolley when it's time to jump off the trolley like it sounds cheesy as fuck but i really think that movie influenced my success Mm. as crazy as that sounds no it doesn't because i want to be able to sit in that room with Rip Torn and watch my footage and not be ashamed of it. <laughs> it's a very, it's such a vivid, brilliant uh, sort of actualization of, of what we all sort of assume will happen. Yeah. I mean, what I mean, yeah. Also, at 16, you're kind of wondering about that kind of totally. shit. Like my parents were very open about religion with me. Uh, they were raised religious. My dad was actually in the seminary, but they let me kind of figure out what I wanted on my way. Mm-hmm. So I was at that point in your life. You're trying to figure out, OK, what is this all about? Where, yeah. And even if I subconsciously, mostly, you're not, you know, 16 year old is like actively trying to figure out what it's all about. But I think stuff like that is going through your mind at that time, especially you start, you, you usually, most teenagers lose someone, whether it's a grandparent or something. Mm-hmm. So the concept of what this is all about and what happens next 
in this really kind of goofy and silly at times comedy. Yeah. I, I, it's this is the kind of movie that doesn't fucking get made anymore and drives me crazy. Yeah. Defending Your Life is the ultimate that movie would not get made today. People like to point to woke bullshit like, oh, we couldn't make Blazing Saddles. We couldn't make Defending Your Life and release it in a theater today. Right. There's just no fucking way. Right. Like, that's really what we've lost. Yeah. I, I'm not sure we could get LA Story in a theater either, personally. Uh, but that's another conversation. Maybe if, like, it was an Adam Sandler movie. <laughs> that would be a very different movie. Yeah. That was something that was that was hitting me. That we I watched Defending Your Life with my wife last night uh, just because I realized it wasn't a Terry Gilliam film. <laughs> I was like, all right, let me let me go back to this, you know, because I'm not remembering it correctly. Let me remember the Alvin Burke's version. Uh, but like it is that was the thing that I was thinking about with last night was like uh, it's it's sort of like indulgent but that's not really what I mean in a negative way like it's right. philosophically indulgent yes yes yeah. and that doesn't happen and, you know like and that's the thing that I feel like you don't see anymore no. I feel like I haven't seen a movie like that in, in a, a long time that sort of like takes an idea and stretches it out to its sort of philosophical end yeah. deliberately specifically and and without sort of trying to hide it under some other plot device like right. that's, that's just what we're doing here you know uh, and honestly that's true of a, my next choice too that we'll get to and i think that era is gone the idea of being openly hey, we're going to talk about the meaning of life we're going to talk about the fates pushing us into romance in la like the era of the familiar ip has kind of killed that kind of blatantly philosophical personal filmmaking personal Wide theatrical releases right. are just disappearing. Yeah, yeah. No, it's true. The one other thing that I think is worth noting about Defending Your Life before we move on is I think it's also important for, you know, maybe a, a younger listener who's watching this movie for the first time to understand what a revelation it was to see Meryl Streep yes. in this kind of a light comic role absolutely she had done she'd taken a couple of sort of unsuccessful stabs at comedy in the yeah. years previous she had done she devil which that's before this right before that, that was right before this yeah. and that didn't quite land and she had done postcards from the edge i think yes 90 90 yeah which is lighter but this was her first like real like light romantic comedy and she's terrific just phenomenal and like yeah exactly crazy like that don't feel like that kind of casting would happen yeah. nowadays. Yeah. Well, either of them, really. Right, but. right. But, you know, enough stuff has happened in the interim, like, you know, Julie and Julia or, right. you know, Devil Wears Prada, that it's oh, like yeah, it's yeah. not a big surprise for Meryl Streep to do comedy. Right. But I remember at the time people being like, oh, shit, Meryl Streep can do comedy, too. Uh, and that Albert Brooks had landed the star of Sophie's Choice yes. in, a, in a romantic comedy. <laughs> it was, was all like, great. what's happening here? <laughs> and their chemistry is great. wonderful. It's phenomenal. It's wonderful. Yeah. All right. So you mentioned uh, uh, the, there was a, a thread from this one to the next well, one. Well, so he mentioned your... Terry Gilliam. So we'll move on to that. <laughs> uh, another just here's I want to make a movie about important shit, like mm -hmm. kind of from a and again, the, I think a theme here is filmmakers or artists that I had liked before showing me a new side of them. Definitely. So like I knew Terry as a Monty Python guy. I had seen Baron Munchaus and I knew I, I'd seen Brazil. I was a fan at that moment. It could happen to anyone. One day you're on top of the world. Hey! The next day, oh, let the bum go! you're in the world <laughs> of the Fisher King. Yes! Now, Jack is about to do something he's never done before. Isn't she a vision? Help someone else. I thought things would change for me. I love this guy! The Fisher King, rated R. But Fisher King was this, okay, Terry's got a lot of money. He's got this big cast. He's got an Oscar nominees in it. What's he going to do here? And it's just, I feel like Terry's entire worldview and heart is in Fisher King yeah. from first frame to last. Yeah. Uh, it's just like, okay, this is me. This is what I think about in terms of personal responsibility, in terms of fantasy, in terms of mental illness, in terms of trauma. These are the issues that haunt me at night. And I'm going to turn that into a crazy brilliantly designed fantasy extravaganza that's not, like nothing you've seen in years in a major theatrical release. Fisher King blew my mind when Same. I saw it. It was also one of those movies that started my hatred of awards giving bodies <laughs> because as much as I love Robin and Mercedes in that movie, Jeff Bridges is fucking incredible oh. Oh, yeah. in the Fisher King. And it was it was a time in awards giving when the straight man never got the attention they deserved. Correct. Tom Cruise and Rain Man Robin in Awakenings, yep. Yep. coincidentally. Denzel Jeff, in Philadelphia Denzel a couple in Philadelphia, years later. Jeff in this movie. Yeah. I thought Jeff gave the best performance of the year in any film. Yeah. Period. Yeah. And no one 
talked about it. Right. I felt like I was alone on an island. And then it happened two years later in Fearless. So I became like a Jeff Bridges lunatic at that time because those two performances, I think Fisher King and Fearless are like, you want to talk about acting. Next level. Next level. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so it's, it's one of those movies that I, when I think of night, it was one of the first movies I thought of. It was the third movie after the last two we'll get to <laughs> in terms of like, okay, that movie was important to me then and it's still important to me now and I should show it to my kids. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, and what's crazy about that, because you're right about how personal it feels. Yes. How how ripped from his heart and soul it feels. But we're also kind of talking about the definition of an auteur because yes. that's this was the first film on which he's not a credited screenwriter. Right. That this was an existing screenplay that Richard, the great Richard Legravenes. Phenomenal. Had written. Um, and that was shopped to him and that he took, I, I, I did, because uh, I wrote about this film a bit in the New York book right. because of that incredible yeah, which he did that central sequence. St- yeah, yeah. sequence. Holy shit. Yeah, I read that it's in one your of my book. Favorite, <laughs> one of my favorite things in New York movies yes, is that grand central insane. sequence. But it was a, this was kind of like a, a moonshot for him because uh, Baron Munchausen had tanked so badly right. and so loudly and had lost so much money. Yes. And it was a real like, you know, he had to sort of get a project together fairly quickly yeah. that had some commercial appeal. And he had, um, I think Don Steele was one of the producers on that and he yeah. had an ally in her. And they sort of brought him together with this existing Richard Legravene script. But then, you know, they collaborated, of course, to make it kind of a Terry Gilliam movie. Which very much. Very much is. Yeah. yeah, you can't look at that movie and not see Brazil and Munchausen okay. and Python and all the other stuff. It's, it's like a holy grail. There's a holy, holy grail, grail in yeah, the movie. Exactly. No, I know. It's interesting that it's not his screenplay, but it's very clearly his yeah. movie as much as anybody's. So, very much so. Yeah. yeah. And no, and... and I think this was one of the when you talk about the sort of the revelations that that you were making about what movies are and what they could do yeah. at this time. I feel like for me, this was a huge movie in understanding how a director could command tone. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. The way like the, the 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 way that this movie turns on a dime yes. from comedy to tragedy and back again and and turns hard. Oh like, yeah, like he doesn't the trauma of the movie, the dark imagery of the movie, the night and. And the, and the mental illness and all that he doesn't do it casually no nope. again i hate to be old man yelling at a cloud but i feel like so many movies nowadays go like halfway there mm-hmm. and fisher king terry and that's partially what makes it a terry movie yes he yeah. took the script but he fucking punches yeah. everything he doesn't yeah. just tap yeah so. no agreed Agreed. All right. So well, I got a segue to the next one. See, I just told you we'll do this naturally. It happened. Another director who punches the shit out of everything he does, and that's Oliver Stone with yeah. JFK. From the shadow of a doubt. Who would leave a path as big as Lee Harvey Oswald? To the darkest suspicions. Nobody's going to tell me that kid did the shooting job he did from that damn bookstore. One man would make a dangerous journey. Don't you think the Kennedy assassination is a little bit out of your domain? Looking for the truth. Kevin Costner in an Oliver Stone film. Nothing is going to keep me from my investigation of John Kennedy's murder. JFK, rated R, starts Friday, December 20th at a theater near you. A movie that, I again, I was like, why do I love that movie? Uh, really robust filmmaking, of course, but also I think it formulated my idea that movies about history don't need to be fucking true stories all the time. Right. That this idea <laughs> that if I'm watching a movie about a chapter of history, quote unquote, I need to be taking notes and talk about it in class. Movies are not history classes, people. Don't ever look at it that way. Right. Glenn Kenny wrote a phenomenal piece during the Zero Dark Thirty controversy about the minute a camera, the minute a decision is made on where a camera is being placed, it's not history. Right. It's art. And so JFK to me, I, you don't have to believe any of it to really appreciate the robust filmmaking, to appreciate the direction of the performances, the editing, which is insane. Yeah. Um, and how it becomes more about paranoia mm-hmm. and being stuck in things than it becomes about history and how America got stuck in things and how Oliver got stuck in things and how we are all just cycling through ideas and paranoia and distrust over and over and over again. And that's certainly still true. And JFK to me felt like a lightning bolt when yeah. I saw it. In everything, in the filmmaking, in the performances, I didn't know Kevin Bacon could do that. I remember actively <laughs> thinking that. I didn't know the kid from Footloose could do that performance, right. which he should have won an Oscar for, by the way. Right. I think he's phenomenal with JFK. Uh, everything about that movie 
people are like, well, it didn't really happen. I go, I don't fucking care. Right. <laughs> right. No, it's true. It's true. And I remember, I, re I remember the same feeling of being in a theater. I remember like, this is one of those so vivid, like I can tell you the theater yeah. that I saw it in. I can tell you the seat I was sitting. That's in awesome. Because it blew my mind yeah. open so much just in terms of, 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 even if it weren't a compelling story, which it certainly is, just the sheer mastery of the technique. It's insane. Just what he's doing in yeah. terms of, uh, you know, Robert Richardson cinematography, yeah. this incredible sort of multimedia melange that he that he would continue to play with for the yeah. next few years. Yep. It's a great effect. Um, the, the intensity of the editing, the idea that you could cut a, a historical drama like an action movie. Right. And then this, and so all of that, you know, is hugely important and influential when I'm seeing it. Last year, I spent several months working on a John Candy biography that right. didn't end up happening. Um, but as part of that process, I got into his notes oh, cool. for that very small role. It's a good, good performance. Great performance yeah. and a real hint at sort of what he, where he could have gone Agreed. as a character actor, Agreed. the John Goodman career what that we he lost. could have had. Yeah, yeah. Had oh we not God. lost him three years later. John Candy in a Coen Brothers movie in that era. Oh my God. Yeah. Um, but I would what, live in that alternate what knocked me out was looking at the dates on that because you know there were shooting schedules and oh, things yeah. in there. He was shooting his scenes, which were towards the end of the shoot, but he was shooting his scenes in July of '91. Oh wow! This movie came out in December so of '91. So like, it's not just that they made this like incredible three-hour hyperkinetic, yeah. you know. Uh, cut within an inch of its life movie they also put it together in like well, six months yeah the fact that it's two years after born on the fourth of july is crazy yes. like <laughs> he had he put out the doors earlier that oh, that's year right. i forgot about earlier the doors in between year. there now i don't want to make any assumptions about mr stone's use of recreational uh substances but i think there's a pretty clear explanation for how you do all that work in one year <laughs> well yeah maybe i i had seen like i mentioned earlier i'd seen platoon i'd seen born on the fourth of july yeah. so the idea that stone was was this cinematic historian was fascinating to me, but I think it took JFK for me to realize that these movies are saying as much about him as they are about oh, history. Oh, absolutely. So I think a lot of my, for lack of a better phrase, auteur theory critical ideas come from that Oliver Stone period. Mm. But he's not making historical documents. He's not writing nonfiction books. Right. He's trying to tell you about what he cares about, what he finds interesting, and he's using insanely kinetic powerful filmmaking to do that visceral filmmaking. visceral filmmaking i think the movie is is a, a non-fiction story about being an american and sort of experience like how we yeah. experience our sure. history chaos you know and how we sort of experience our media i mean yeah. i don't mean non-fiction in a documentary sense but like Commentary. feels very felt very real to me then and feels very real to me still now ahead of its time sort of the way that Yep. That we experience our history because we don't ex we don't experience like, you know, this is literally exactly what happened on the day of the Gettysburg Address or what the fuck ever. Like we experience right. the myth. Right. You know, Interpretation. We experience sort of the, the story that's been built up since then. And in a lot of ways, we do that with JFK also. And it's ahead like, of its time in that sense. Two years ago when like his kid was coming back. And that was all bullshit, and he was going to, yeah. like, lead the new revolution. I mean, like, <laughs> we're still sort of living with these yeah. stories in a, in a way. that, And I think the movie's true to that. Yeah. Definitely. Honestly, ahead of its time in terms of, like, paranoia and conspiracy theories, which are everywhere now. Mm -hmm. Like, the fact that this movie's this is one of those movies that I think could come out today if there was a filmmaker willing to do it. Because right. we still live in such paranoid, conspiracy-driven times. Right. Except it couldn't get a release, you know, a major release from Warner Brothers. It would be on YouTube. And that cast would cost $250 million. <laughs> 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 that's true that's true too all right well that brings us to the to the to the the, uh, the, the elephant in the room yeah. the uh the biggie the movie yeah. that when people ask me what a perfect movie is it's one of the ones that comes to mind and that I, is silence of the lambs a rookie fbi agent found a girl's body down in west virginia are you saying that he's killed again i'll have you catch him clary a psychiatrist turned psychopath yes and now clary poor little captain is waiting opposites with one attraction tell me his name doctor no Lecter's missing hand arm ah! her life hangs in the balance man's a raving maniac who knows what i'll do the silence of the lambs rated r I think Silence of the Lambs, frame by frame, shot by shot, choice by choice. There's a thing Roger Ebert used to do called Cinema Interruptus, oh, where yeah. someone he'd play a movie and stop it constantly. People could raise their hands at any point in the movie and ask a question. 
I could do Cinema Interrupted on Silence of the Lambs for eight hours. I could. <laughs> I could talk about every shot choice, every acting choice. There's stuff in there I notice every time. I did a Q&A for it not that oh, a few years ago. And so a friend of mine asked a question about the use of American flags. Oh, in yeah. The film. And I had noticed it, but I hadn't really like dissected it. It's and how it's what it's saying about Americana. There's a lot of shots of American flags in the film. Yeah, uh, there's a, well, like four prominent ones and then maybe some other ones in the background. But it's one of those movies. that's so rich. It's and like and it's also, I think, again, to get back to how this formed critical theory for me, the idea that genre can be this good. You can make a thriller based on a Thomas Harris book that is perfect, like yeah. from first frame to last. It doesn't have to be. It's the old does the movie set out, does the movie accomplish what it sets out to do argument of critical theory. And Silence of the Lambs accomplishes what it sets out yeah. to do without question. Yeah. And uh, I think it shaped that part of my brain. Like we don't have to look down on horror or genre or thriller. And also I was just the performances in that movie. And when I think about Jody and when I think about Hopkins, I just, I get, I get a little speechless because I just think yeah. they're perfect. I think every choice, and and this is another one too, where like I had seen Stop Making Sense and loved it. I had seen Something Wild. I had seen uh, Married to the Mob. And this one was like, oh my God, he can do fucking anything yeah. he wants. Yeah. Like Demi is a god to me in terms of genre jumping. Yeah. Like we all love the Coen brothers for that and they, admittedly I get that. But Demi's, to go from those no, ones like, I just he's like mentioned, the 90s Howard Hawks it's insane yeah and then to do like Rachel getting married something like that right. years later right. it's like the the scope of what he could do I think he's still underrated yeah. I think Jonathan Demme should be on lists of the best American filmmakers who ever lived. Yeah. I so. agree I agree you know the, the and the thing the thing that I always think of I don't know about you you know sometimes a specific image comes into my head you know when a title pops across something that i'm sure. reading or something like that and for i always think you know and there are so many of them but just the that that in, the demi shot like you know what i'm talking about the the, the direct into oh, camera yeah. Yeah. uh address which is a device that he uses yes. here magnificently he uses it in a few other films as well um but in this like that that idea of speaking directly into the lens as if the lens is the other person yes. and cutting conversational scenes that use that, but that don't use it all the way through. Right. And the choices that he uh, and Taku Jimoto, the incredible cinematographer and the editor, whose name escapes me, make uh, in terms of when, when, when they come into scenes, when they go into close-ups yes. and then when they go into that close-up. That's what I'm saying. You can like choose any few shots in this film and say, okay, why did they make this choice here? Yeah. Where, what power is he giving Clarice or Hannibal in this mm -hmm. shot by the framing of it? How is he drawing you into this moment by putting you in the middle of their fucking conversation? Yeah. And then, I mean, lastly, Silence of the Lambs influenced so many bad fucking movies. Yes. Like, and, and in all the wrong ways. All, but it made you realize how accomplished what he yeah. pulled off was yeah, by seeing all the copycats who couldn't do it. Including it, literally copycat. Yeah, copycat. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there were so many movies that wanted that Hannibal Clarice yeah. vibe, yeah. and it's not as easy as it looks. That was the Demi thing. Yeah. Something wild, not as easy as it looks. No. It looks super laid back and easy. Stop making sense. You don't yeah. just put a camera on a stage and show a band. Yeah. Demi, but Demi made it look so easy that people would try to copy him and fall on their fucking face yeah. over and over again uh, because what he did only looked easy. It's very hard. Because he was so offhand. So and casual about it. He was a genius. But he was, yeah, he was just, just an absolute yeah, fucking genius. He had a visual sense that's still underrated. He had a tonal mastery that's still underrated, like in terms of something wild, the way he shifts oh tones in that movie. Yeah. Unreal. Uh, and, and even Lambs. I mean, the way he keeps the tension slowly building. A lot of the copycats would try to, like, push out horror scenes. Nope. Mm -hmm. Silence of the Lambs builds. Yeah. It doesn't push. It doesn't jump scare you. It builds. And that's harder to do. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, agreed. All right. Well, here's the good news um, is that, you know, sometimes the transition from the end of top five into awards and box office <laughs> I picked the big one. is clumsy. <laughs> you know, we got to figure, okay, how do we get from this segment to another? And uh, luckily, we can just continue this conversation uh, as we go into awards and box office. I'll hold a moment for the music. Sell out with me. Oh, yeah. Sell out with me tonight. And Mike, uh, what did well at the Oscars that year? <laughs> well yeah how about if we start with uh best picture best director best actor best actress and best adapted screenplay 
to the uh, better, like it's it's even better than you remember. Silence of the Lambs, <laughs> it really, like no matter how good you remember it being, at least yeah. for me, every time I yeah. put it on, I'm like, fuck, it's better than I remember it being, Agreed. and I remembered it being great. Yeah, yep. yeah, you no, this is yeah. this is one of one of uh, three films to win the big five, right? To win picture, director, actor, actor, screenplay, and the other two being One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which we've discussed on the show, and uh, it happened one night as well, yeah, and it'll happen with. Uh, Elvis shortly (laughs) we should mention we're also recording this on Oscar morning and Brian and I are both gleeful that we we can cover this festival instead of covering the Oscars what else won Oscars in that Silence of the Lambs heavy year Michael I remember this being I remember everybody being happy about this one isn't this the one arm push up yeah best supporting actor went to Jack Palance for City Slickers yeah yeah uh Fun performance. It was an era where they were, and they still do this a little bit, giving veterans supporting awards. Totally. Like Tommy and Fugitive. And there was another one around that time, too. It's like, okay, we're just going to yeah. give this to him because we love them kind and of thing. He's it's a fun still doing it. It's, it's a fun performance. It's a, it's a charming little, yeah. extremely early 90s comedy. This is also a time when they awarded comedy than they, more than they yeah. did. Like yeah. Kevin we'll Klein s- and Fish Called Wanda. Yeah. One yeah. of my favorite performances of all time. Yeah. What, what else? Uh, what other comedy won an Oscar that year? Surely you don't mean best supporting actress. I do. That's a comic <laughs> performance. It, for, for her part, for sure. You're right. That's a comic performance to Mercedes Rule and Fisher King. Yeah, she she really is phenomenal. Phenomenal. It's 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 one of those performances where like the second she steps on screen, you know exactly who this person is, and there's there's a rich history that's been lived sure. before that scene and Agreed. after it. And there's a, it's a tonal balancing of the film. Totally, too. It, it needs that, and it needs. Um, Michael Jeter, is that his name? Mm-hmm. He's that character yeah. to kind of balance out the trauma at the center of that film. Yeah, agreed. Best original screenplay went to Callie Curry for Thelma and Louise. Thelma and Louise is so fucking good. A movie I thought about including. Thelma and Louise is, an, I believe, still underrated, in yeah. my opinion. And, and that screenplay is part of it's what's underrated. That screenplay yeah. is, people like to use this phrase, tight as a drum. You don't mm-hmm. cut anything out of that screenplay. Every, even the scenes that feel organic have purpose. Like, it's just a really good screenplay. Yeah. The, the ladies in that get a lot of attention, but I'm happy we mentioned the screenplay in this yeah. context because it's a phenomenal one. Yeah. That one back, back when they gave screenplays awards to good movies. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm on a little bit of a tear lately on what might win tonight. Sorry. It's fine. We understand. Don't yell at me everything everywhere, people. I'm not talking about that movie. Don't worry. <laughs> Disclaimer. Okay, go ahead. Uh, I think also like that's Delman Louise is one of those movies where like the end is genuinely earned mm-hmm. and pulled off. And mm-hmm. a surprise, and I feel like that was one of the things that like <clears throat> it, it got it got sort of the attention it deserved at the time. Yeah, that movie you know? got uh, that was a huge yes. like like in terms of the pre-internet era, like that was a huge. think piece movie. It was. Like, there were cover stories. There were New yes. York Times editorials. Like it was a hot topic. It was kind of in the same way that Fatal Attraction had been a few years before. Right. Like this was an adult drama that you were expected to have seen and formulated an opinion on. Agreed. And right now it would be buried on Prime Video in mid-December. Yeah, uh, I could do Ridley Scott for roughly four hours, so maybe yeah. we'll do that for another podcast. But what he does in that movie, like in most movies, is just yeah. insanely accomplished. Yeah. Ridley yeah. Scott is a favorite of mine. Yeah. And you know who's a big Ridley Scott fan? Who? Ridley Scott. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's one of my favorite <laughs> podcast interviews ever is when he went on WTF and every time Marilyn oh, right. bring up one of his movies, he'd go, great movie. <laughs> and go on. Well, when you, when Everyone you... should have. I'm sorry. I'm tired of false modesty. No, Everyone too. should have that kind of enthusiasm Dude. about the work that they do, and especially if they've made as many good movies as he has. And if I'm as old as him making two Hell fucking yes. movies a year, I'm going to tell you how great they are over <laughs> and over again. <laughs> He's amazing. Yeah. Best Love foreign it. film, Mediterraneo. I have not seen I haven't seen Mediterraneo. Saw it then, Ooh. have no memory of it. No. But okay. this was at a time when I'm sure I saw all the winners. And I remember vaguely the poster. I worked I at a too. video store. Yep. And so <laughs> I remember too. the video box. <laughs> and I know I saw it. I have almost no memory of it. All right. Probably something in the Mediterranean. Probably something. <laughs> best score, best original song, also Golden Globes in the same categories for Beauty and the Beast. I Beauty and the Beast is a pretty good yeah, uh, I'm a fan. Disney feature, Disney yes. animated. Yeah, I, I got no ill will towards Beauty and the Beast. It's a very effective movie. It still works. Yep. Some right. other significant award winners. Uh, Golden Globe for best film comedy musical also went to Beauty and the Beast. Okay. 
That seems. It's a musical. Is that? Yeah, oh, musical. it's a big it's time a musical. musical. They love yeah. it when they can give yeah. that award to an actual musical. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Even if it's a cartoon, huh? Yep. Don't look down on cartoons. <laughs> uh, Golden Globe for Best Film Drama and the LA Film Critic Association Award for Best Film went to Bugsy. I saw Bugsy when it came out in yeah. the theater. I was very excited because it was Barry Levinson and I really liked Rain Man. Right. I did not respond to Bugsy at all at the time. I, I really need to revisit that one. I do I feel too. like it, it would play better for me as a middle-aged man than it did as a teenager. It's not I, really a teenager movie. No, but I remember liking it more than that, but I also don't remember it. Mm. So like maybe, I don't know what that means. I don't think I've seen it in 32 years yeah so yeah that's probably part of the problem but i do remember like because i too was a levinson guy and i liked baby enough at the time mm -hmm. I, I remember thinking it was good yeah. and the supporting performances in that movie are strong yeah harvey Keitel, i remember being and pretty kingsley great i think is in that right what's that kingsley's in that yeah playing yeah. mayor lansky yeah yeah yeah. yeah 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 golden globe for best director went to oliver stone for jfk richly deserved Mm -hmm. uh, Mike, Mike, uh, would, you, uh, Mike would you like an ice cream treat? <laughs> you can hear the digging behind us. <laughs> Sorry, this is life in Austin. <laughs> yes, it is. This, that was a that, those looked like some pretty good ice cream treats. Yeah. All right, go ahead. It's still winter where I live with your fucking ice creams. If you can send me a breakfast burrito, though, I'll take one of those. It was 90 here uh, yesterday. There we Golden go. Globe for best, <laughs> best Actor in a Drama went to Nick Nolte for Prince of Tides. Good performance. Good good movie. Good performance. Not so not sure. Not crazy it's a good about the movie. movie. Fair enough. No. All right. All right. I love Nolte and that well, era of Nolte. I think we can agree on the greatness of this next one. Golden Globe for Best Actress, Comedy, or Musical went to Bette Midler from For the Boys. I have no idea what that is. <laughs> no, I remember it vaguely. Yeah, that was a real, again, they love to give it to a, to a musical. Totally memory hold that movie where it probably belongs. Golden Globe for Best Foreign Film went to Europa Europa. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, good, I remember that. Film. Holland, right? Yep, Holland. yep, yep. Good film. Yep. And the Palm Noir can went to Barton Fink. Hey! Fuck yeah. Yay. <laughs> Big Barton Fink guy. Yeah. Thought about that one too. Uh, man, it's a, we're going to talk about formative things. The cones were. Yeah. You, we're all the, you're the same age. The cones at that time, it's just like everything. And if we're talking, like I said, we're talking about someone who can shift genres. Yeah. I mean, and, I, and putting out a new movie like almost every year, yeah. it feels like at this period. At that this point. Period. Yeah. yeah. I wrote a college paper that I found not that long ago about their first four movies and what they had in common, even though they were different genre films. Like roads and imagery, certain imagery that kept very reading. distinctive voice. Yeah. So they yes. were auteurs that I adored at that time. <laughs> All right, Mike, let's bang through this uh, this uh, domestic top ten. Number ten, Hot Shots. Funny, sure. Okay. Number nine, <laughs> Cape Fear. Good. Amazing good. that Hot Shots was the tenth highest grossing film hey, of that year. Man, Sorry people, to go back. People Cape Fear. To good. Laugh. I like Cape Fear. Me too. It's 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 you know it's, it's lower tier Scorsese, but higher tier just about anybody else. Agreed. Can't say it any better than that. <laughs> I disagree. I love that movie. Oh, I don't cool. know that it's lower tier. It's a it's a different it's a different type of storytelling than yes. he normally does. But Agreed. Robert De Niro is scary as fuck in that movie. Like, yes, he is. <laughs> I'm a yeah. big fan. Yes. Uh, number eight was uh, the Adams Family. The uh, Houston one, the uh, Houston and Joe. Yeah, uh, the, the the first one, which Rollins I like, but not as much as the second one. That's Agreed. a rare sequel better than the original situation. Agreed. I prefer Adam's Family Values, but Adam's Family, pretty it's, good. It's fun, yeah. Number seven, 15-year-old me was very excited for the Naked Gun two and a half, The Smell of Fear. Two, funny, funny two of, the, yeah. of the ZAZ alums in the top, in the top, in the top ten. ten. Movies Naked that would Gun not play in theaters right now. Yeah, That's Naked crazy. Gun two and a half was pretty great. If, yeah, I remember enjoying that, yeah. Number six was uh, the well-attended JFK. Good. Number five, Silence of the Lambs. Good. On their way yes. to, to winning yes. statues. Yep. Number four was Hook, baby. <laughs> Three hundred million worldwide. That's what blows my mind. Is that like Hook now has the reputation of being like you know a bomb, the, a bomb and and a flop and the thing he had to recover from with That's Jurassic crazy. Park. It's like, no, Hook made a shitload of money. It was just most of us who were not tiny kids at the time did, didn't care for it too so much. So is always the year before? Always like, was eighty nine. It was two years earlier. Yeah. Is there anything in between? Uh, Always was the bomb. So yeah. Hook was really the comeback. <laughs> kind of. It's weird how these things get reframed. Yes, it is. All right. Number three was Beauty and the Beast. Good. Yes. Number two, 
And this movie, I never actually saw this movie. I'm mostly offended for the way that Brian Adams took over MTV when this <laughs> fucking movie came out with his terrible song and his sappy bullshit Robin yep. Hood Prince of Thieves. Bad movie. Bad movie. Bad. So Costner's got two in the top six. Yeah. So he was kind of the king oh, of Oh, he was year. the shit. This was the yeah. year after fucking Dances, baby. That's right. He was the king of Hollywood he in 91. And he then was. Still is. Yellowstone. That's true. <laughs> Prince of Thieves was sort of seen as like, a, you know, a chance to knock him down a peg with his uh, movie sucks. With this Southern California Robin Hood accent. Movie's bad. Movie's they can't bad. make good but Robin Hood movies. Rickman? Rickman's good. Rickman's great in it. Rickman's okay, good. go ahead. And number one, Terminator 2, colon, Judgment Day. Thought about it. Wild that we have gone this long I know. mentioning T2. <laughs> I but thought it's like, about it. It's, it's, a, it's also it's a perfect great. movie. It's yeah. great. It's it, really well constructed. And I mean, and I think we saw in the ensuing years how hard it is to uh, do a good Terminator sequel. Or, or <laughs> it's a sequel like that in general. Yeah. Like in terms of shifting the ideas of the film like yeah. building on them instead of just repeating them yeah like i think i think t2 is great I and mean, who doesn't like t2 yeah all right that's the one it? where the fella like turns into metal and walks between yes. the bars and all that right sure does yeah. man that was sure a big does. deal yes, oh, it it was. Was. that was a big deal that movie's, shit looked amazing it sure did 32 years that movie's still referenced yeah i mean usually by cameron himself but it's still but referenced. still <laughs> but still yep all right you ready to do a lightning round? Yeah. Well, I just got to say good or bad. Good, bad, pass. Okay. If you have more to say than good or bad, feel free. But, okay. But, but I've got I'm a in. nice Let's go. long list from the uh, from the screen annual. Let's roll. And we're doing it. Here we go. Five on the clock. Thank you, Mike. The Double Life of Veronique. I almost included it. It's a masterpiece. Go see as much Kozlowski as you possibly can. The only reason I didn't include it is because I saw it a little later in life, and I wanted to be honest with my 16-year-old. Gus Van Sant's My Own Private Idaho. Great movie. Richard Linklater's Slacker. Good movie. I love Linklater, but I think that movie's not as great as some people think it is. It feels like a first film. It does. It does. Lawrence Kasdan's Grand Canyon. Movie I really liked at the time because it yeah. was cheesy and like moving in a way that I thought was true. I mm -hmm. uh, don't think I've seen it since. Nice uh, Steve Martin performance. Yes, yes. Nice I remember seeing it. not quite regular Steve Martin. I remember being moved by it. Yep, yep. Uh, the aforementioned The Doors by all of, by the very busy, perhaps, yeah. Oliver Stone. <laughs> uh, between two better movies, which I think kind of lower yeah. in terms of Stone's filmography. Uh, okay movie. Yeah, I've gone back to it recently. I and, have it. And uh, on 4K, like, it's just kind of have a concert experience with it. Pretty fucking great. Yeah, well, it's that stone era of, like we were talking about, I'm going to put it all fucking up yes. there on the screen. So. Yes, indeed. Uh, Mario Van Peebles' New Jack City. Saw it again recently and was surprised at how much it works. I think it's an effective movie. I think I kind of wrote it off at the time. Uh, it just didn't appeal to me at that era of my life, but I think it's good. It's really strikingly photographed. I was it is. really taken by, the, by the way that movie looks yeah, when it, I saw it, it again. It's better than you think. Than I don't remember. Spike Lee's Jungle Fever. Uh, I'm mixed on that one. I, I, I love, you know, we've talked about Spike Lee so many times, you and I. I love Spike. Uh, that movie I saw again recently and worked less effectively than I thought. Interesting. It See, when I first saw it, I didn't love it because it had so been pushed as the issue movie about interracial romance. Right. And I thought it sort of failed at that level. When I rewatched it recently, it played to me much more as like a sort of Altman-esque tapestry of uh, Brooklyn in the early 1990s. And on that level, I thought it was really affecting. One man's tapestry is another man's movies that never quite come together. There you have it. Uh, Robert Townsend's sophomore feature, The Five Heartbeats, came out in 1991. Saw it. Barely remember it. Um, I don't. I'm gonna pass. I guess. I remember thinking he was fine. John Singleton's Boys in the Hood. Oh well, yeah, super effective movie. Uh, yeah, that, that's actually a major American film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. agreed. Um, a, a favorite of uh, the uh, aforementioned Roger Ebert, The Rapture. Oh, Mimi Rogers. Yeah, Michael Tolkien movie. Remember liking it? Haven't seen it in 32 years, but remember thinking it was effective. Kenneth, it's a good year. Yeah, it was. Yes, it was. Yeah. Kenneth Branagh's Dead Again. Love Dead Again. I thought about Dead Again. Thought about including Dead Again. Dead Again's in the next six through ten. Dead yeah. Again fucking rules. Yeah. And I that oh god, I sound like such an old man. But that is such the movie I wish I could see it like at this festival or another festival. So someone that knows how to do genre with adults for adults. Like, come on. Yeah. Make Dead Again somebody. Yeah. I honestly I wish I felt like Brenna was ever having as good a time making a movie Amen. as he seemed to have had making Man. Yeah, so much of his stuff, especially recently, feels overly calculated. But yep. there's like a 
roughness around the edges, a joyfulness yeah. to dead again. Also, that's also a magnificent great. Scott Frank screenplay. Yeah, like, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, and another great Robin Williams performance. I forgot that was Scott Frank. Yeah, that was that. his big break. If memory yeah, serves. Yeah, he's a genius. The Last Boy Scout. Oh yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, probably at that time, I might have put it on in the video store every once in a while. Sure. <laughs> oh, Catherine Bigelow's Point Break. Great. Really fun. Enjoy it. But I'm a Bigelow guy. I, I love Bigelow. Ricochet. Denzel movie. Yep. Bad movie. <laughs> Wes Craven's The People Under the Stairs. Oh, again, after I do four hours on Release Guide, I'll do eight on Wes Craven. So People Under the Stairs rules. Big fan. Two Julia Roberts movies. Big year for Julia. Her first starring roles in uh, Sleeping with the Enemy and Dying Young. Both bad. Both bad. Both bad movies. Speaking of bad, Harrison Ford in Regarding Henry. Oh, yeah. Bad movie. But J.J. Abrams screenplay. Yes, that's right. Big break for, for, known. for Jimmy Abrams. <laughs> um, Robert De Niro in Guilty by Suspicion. Bad movie. If I remember, which I barely do. Reese uh, Witherspoon in an early role, The Man in the Moon. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's effective. Yeah. I think I saw part of it recently, and I was like, that's not bad. Roger liked that movie, too. He loved that. Yeah, that yeah, was yeah. a four-star, if I recall yeah. correctly. Uh, also recall him liking The Rocketeer. Oh, yeah. The Rocketeer has some very loyal fans out there. So much so that I always think it's a little weird that I don't love it like some people do. But it's fine. It has aged very well. That's what I've heard. Comparatively. That's what I've heard. And it's been a while. To, yeah. That's probably one I should show my kids if I can talk a minute watching an old movie. Ron Howard's Backdraft. Well, I knew a lot of people that loved it and it just never really clicked with me. I mean, that's a fine movie. My mom loves that movie. That was one of those mom and dad movies back in the era. And finally, Bruce Willis as Hudson Hawk. I'm not with the reclamation of Hudson Hawk. <laughs> I know some people are. I tried. Uh-huh. I was like, oh, maybe this is one of those underrated masterpieces that everybody tells me it is. It's not. <laughs> <laughs> My love for Hudson Hawk has just so much to do with being 15 years old when I saw it. Sure. And that's all I'll say. That's, that's where, fine. That's where I'll end it. I don't begrudge anybody loving the movie like that. Mike, is this the first time someone's batted a thousand in the lightning round? I think it's got to be. It may, I, I worked think, at a video I, no, store. I think Drew. I think Drew may have may have batted a thousand in ninety nine. Uh, um, but this is that's a that's a very impressive showing, yeah, yeah, Brian yeah. Tallarico. Yeah. And now we're gonna throw it to our friend W. Axel Foley for a quick PSA. Head on over to your favorite podcasting app. Give us a star, a rate, a review. Give us a written review and tell us that you love us, because that's what lets people know that we're here. All right, Brian, where can people follow you on social media? Where can they read your work? Brian underscore Tellerico on Twitter is the big one. I'm also on Letterboxd. Um, I don't know how to find people there. Just look up my name uh, and read my work. Mostly RogerEbert.com. I'm there too much. And then I'm on the playlist more with TV, uh, the playlist pretty consistently. Um, I've got a bunch of pieces on The Last of Us floating around out there, if people like that show. There you go. I've got a piece in the New York Times. I've got two pieces, another piece coming up in Vulture, and I've got a piece in today's New York Post, believe it or not. Oh, oh my goodness. I know. <laughs> behind enemy lines. But, uh, but it's a good, fun piece. All right. I'm Jason Dash Bailey on Twitter, Fun City Cinema on Instagram. Mike, where can the folks find you? I am at Brainwashed Lib on Twitter. All right. And Mike, before we go, what is your favorite movie of the year of our Lord 1991? I mean, cool as ice. Obvious, no, uh, <laughs> it's actually come up before uh, in the, the Bradford Young episode. My favorite movie of 91 is Hearts of Darkness, a filmmaker's apocalypse uh, oh, movie yeah. made by Francis Ford Coppola's wife about the making of Apocalypse Now. And it was it's a great movie in its own right. It's a great movie about a great movie. But it was also sort of the first time that I was like, oh, like movie people are fucking weird. <laughs> like these people are nuts. You know yeah. what I mean? Like they're a yeah. lot closer to sort of like my friends and the way oh, I yeah. feel than to sort of the world around me in 1991. That's awesome. Um, you know, which was still... Uh, I feel like pretty buttoned up. Mm -hmm. At least it felt that way to me, you know, and Uh and you're watching that movie and it's just like, oh, okay. So like, that's what success looks like for fucking lunatics. Like, let's go do that. Uh, Yeah. yeah, Great movie. Hearts of Darkness. It is. How about you, Jason? You know, Mike, the only downside of us surprising each other with our favorite film of the year is occasionally we're going to talk about the same goddamn movie. Uh, My favorite (laughs) of 91 
is Hearts of Darkness, a filmmaker's apocalypse. And I will also say, to put us in some company, this was Gene Siskel's favorite movie some of company. 1991. I remember that year-end show very well. I mean, like, yeah. well, shit, I'd better go see that then. Yeah, uh, yeah it's, I, it's it might be a movie I've seen more than Apocalypse Now, just because there was a certain period in my life when I wanted to be a filmmaker. And when you want to be a filmmaker, that is a picture that you can put on for a quick shot of sort of, of pick-me-up inspiration Interesting. at just about any point. Because, like, this dude battled everything oh, I see. to make this movie and made a fucking masterpiece. So, yeah. like, what do I care if I can only get that bar location for two hours? Coppola had them stealing his choppers to fight a fucking <laughs> war. Buck up, Bailey. That's, an, that's a fascinating dissection of that movie. To use Hearts of Darkness as inspirational text. Absolutely. I love it. Aspirational, inspirational. That's amazing. I love that. Go there watch are, Burden of Dreams, too, if you want to see another crazy <laughs> filmmaker movie. Yes, indeed. All right. Thank you again, Brian. Oh, of course, go. anytime. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Jason. And thank you for listening. It was a very good